Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be with you this morning. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We've gotten through verses 1 and 2. I want to try to get down uh, maybe to verse 7 today. We'll see how it goes. Chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. I don't mind reading it again. This is good news amidst a lot of bad news, amidst a lot of lies and misrepresentations of the truth. There's a lot of liars out there, guys. You need to learn to stop listening and paying attention to known liars, okay? We need to get in this book. This book is always right, and we can always trust it. You know, we don't have to listen to liars who say, well, I was telling you the truth. You know, we were just waiting on the data. You know, so in other words, it's okay to lie to people when you don't have all the information. God forbid you would say to people, we just don't know yet. So you'll lie, and then when the data comes in and tells you something different, then you change your story, and then you have the gall to tell us you've always been telling the truth. That's the, that is the level of wickedness that is in our society and our government. And we should turn these people off. But we can trust these words. And we can't repeat them too many times. uh, Revelation 21 verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John speaking. This is an eyewitness account. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Two weeks ago I preached a message on this verse, no more sea, and we touched on biblical cosmology. Verse 2, And I... Eyewitness account, John, and he has the guts to give you his name. I, John, I stake my integrity on what I saw here. Saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what we covered last week, the tabernacle of God, verse 2. John sees two things in this chapter. He sees the new creation where there is no more sky barrier between God's throne and His creation, no more dome, no more firmament. And he sees the tabernacle of God, not the temple of God, the tabernacle. We're going to see today there's a difference between God's sanctuary, His holy place, and His tabernacle, which is His residence. What John sees is the residence of God coming down from heaven prepared for us. God's residence is prepared for us. We inherit it. And it comes down to dwell. At the end of the Gospel of John, turn there just for a moment, John 21, 24. John doesn't write a Gospel account of Christ's life. This Gospel was written much later than the other three synoptics, probably around A.D. 90 around the same time John got his vision on the Isle of Patmos. And John stakes the truth of this eyewitness account of Jesus' life. He stakes his own integrity upon it. He's not afraid to attach his identity to it. When we speak the truth, we should not be afraid to attach our identity to it. It's the wicked who speak in shadows and secrets. It's the wicked who do things in shadows. It's not going to be any of that in the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 24 of the last chapter, this, here's where he appends his name. This is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. John was a man of integrity and those that read his words knew his testimony was true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Not every detail of Christ's life was written down in the Gospels. What was written was what we need to hear so we can know that Jesus is who He claims to be, the Messiah, the Son of God. God didn't need to give us every detail. Perhaps one day in the new heaven and the new earth we're going to learn a lot of details. We're going to see that a lot of what we thought was true was indeed not true. We're going to see that God's Spirit was at work in places we never knew. And we'll learn the great mysteries. We can spend an eternity talking about the great mysteries. But the secrets of the Lord are to those that fear Him. Not the elite. Not the liars in the CDC and the devils up there that worship Baal, the sun god. The sorcerers. You know, the sorcerers go to hell. 
You know what that word sorcerer is there in Greek? Pharmakeia. Pharmacy. Think about the health cult in our country today. Think about sorcery. There's nothing new under the sun. Anthony Fauci's going to hell. He's going to burn in hell for all eternity if he doesn't repent. He's a sorcerer. And many have believed his lies. But Jesus did so many things, we can't even write them down. But what is given is given so that we may know who he is, who God is, what his word says, that God is the final authority, and that God keeps his promises to those that love him. And John stakes the truthfulness of his gospel by appending his own identity to it. He does the same thing here. He does the same thing here that he did at the end of his gospel. I, John, saw these things. The same one that wrote that gospel. It's me talking. I saw these things. I'm not making this up. I saw it with my own eyes. We live in a day and time where the liars and the devils and the abominable, damnable elites who hate you, mark my words, they hate you. Even the people that want your vote and get your vote in these political elections, they hate your guts. Mark my words. They, and they want you to hate me, and they want us to hate people of a different skin color because they hate all of us. Mark my words. I, Jesse, said it, and I won't take it back. Just like I, John, saw these things. They hate us. They hate us. But... John said, I saw these things with my own eyes. We live in a day and time where they don't even want you to trust what you see with your own eyes. You can't trust what you see and hear. You can't trust these experiences you've had with Jesus coming into your life. You can't trust your common sense. You can't trust your health and safety that you've maintained all your life through your simplicity. You've got to trust us. No, friends. You can trust what you see and hear. You can trust what you know because of what Christ Jesus has done in your life and how He's provided for you and answered your prayers. He's confirmed the Word in your circumstances and in your accountability and in this church. You can trust those things. John trusted what he saw. God's not a liar. God doesn't deceive us like the devil. But he sees two things. He sees the new heaven and new earth and the... New Jerusalem. But now we're going on. He hears two things. He sees two things and then he hears two things. It reminds me of what the apostles said when they were arrested there in Acts. We can't help but declare and preach the things we have seen and what we've heard. So you can tell us all day to stop, but we can't help it. We must preach what we have seen and what we have heard. The shepherds went into Bethlehem and the country round about, and they proclaimed what they had seen and what they had heard. That's what's happening here. That's why we ought to give our attention to Revelation. Nobody wants to talk about it. They think it's a deep, dark secret. But John's just telling you what he saw and what he heard. It's pretty simple. He hears two things. In verses 3 and 4, we have an announcement, a declaration. A voice from heaven. And then when we get down to verses 5 through 8, we have an exhortation. It's personal. Directed to John. And this comes from the throne. This is the one who sits on the throne speaks. So we have a voice from heaven speak to all. And then we have the one sitting on the throne speak to John. So, let's just read verses 3 and 4. This is the first thing that John hears. A declaration, an announcement. A great voice out of heaven. And I, not only did I see, but I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold. In other words, pay attention. I like that word, behold. In Spanish, it easily translates to, He aquí. And I love to say that every time I hand somebody a tract. Aiki, behold. Here's a gospel tract for you. It tends to get their attention. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
So now this voice is interpreting for John or explaining what he's seen. What have you just seen? The tabernacle of God is now with men. It's not off in the distance, way up there beyond the heavens somewhere. It's now with men, God's residence. And He will dwell with them. He'll live with them. Not just watching over them, not just His feet resting on His footstool. He will live with them. Dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself, not some other God, not some demigod, not Baal, the sun god, or the, the, the mythological fallen angels that were worshipped in Greece and Rome. Not so mythological, they were devils, fallen angels. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. You know, there's a voice that declares from heaven multiple times throughout the Scriptures, and when it does, it says something very profound and yet very simple. When Jesus was baptized, there was a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The voice from heaven spoke when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I have glorified you and I will glorify you again. The people heard it and yet they so easily explained it away. Oh, it must have been thunder. You know, people with hard hearts don't want the truth. That's why Abraham told the rich man in hell that even if you went back from the dead and made an appearance to your brethren, it wouldn't matter. They have Moses and the prophets. So they wouldn't hear you even if you came back from the dead. We've got Moses and the prophets, and there are many out here, some in our churches, that wouldn't listen even if the heavens spoke. But yet they speak, and we are without excuse. A declaration, an announcement. Remember I told you last week at the end of the message that the, that the Greek that's used here is interesting because it's from where we get our word in English, megaphone. A great mega voice, phone spoke from heaven. It was a megaphone type of voice. And you know, the megaphone is considered the... the uh, you're going to turn everybody away type of preaching tool nowadays. And we've heard the stupid garbage over and over again. We've heard the garbage everywhere you go. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's why we're in the mess we're in in this country. That's why the wicked and the liars get away with everything because we, we're all this, everywhere you go, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Nobody ever used words. Nobody ever warned the wicked. Nobody ever called men to repentance with their mouth. Nobody ever showed the lies of men versus the truth of God and so now everybody believes the lies. But God's truth needs to be shouted with a megaphone. You know, that idiot, Rob Bell, who's a false devil from the pit of hell... Nobody even knows about him anymore because anytime these false teachers rise and they're the latest fad, it's always temporary. And then they go away. But that idiot used to make fun of the bullhorn preachers, the bullhorn guy. And I said back then, I am the bullhorn guy and I make no apologies. It was a bullhorn that declared this truth from heaven, a megaphone, a great voice. God's truth must be proclaimed with a great voice in these dark, wicked days. And that's what we do when we go out here. Eric knows. He saw. He walked along with us last week. We're not mincing words out here, folks. America's in trouble. And Jesus Christ, your only hope. Verse 3, we hear what will be. And what will be, interestingly, is also what has never been before. What will be is what has never been before in this creation. God's residence, not His temple, His residence now resides with men. There's never been such a day since the creation of the world. We're told in Genesis 3.8 that God came down and walked in the garden in the cool of the day. But God's residence was not in the Garden of Eden. 
He came down and he walked with men in the cool of the day. And then Adam hid because he knew he had disobeyed God. And that fellowship was broken. But here, not only is fellowship restored, God's residence comes down. That's never been. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Because Ezekiel discusses this same thing. Remember these visions that John sees. These things that he is transported up to heaven to see are nothing new. The New Testament isn't something new in the sense of it being not being there before. The New Testament's the greatest commentary there is on the Old Testament. Human nature, human history are the greatest commentaries on the whole Bible. But the New Testament only affirms what's always been written. Ezekiel 37 Verses 25 through 28. This is immediately following Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones, the valley of the dry bones. Now we've seen part of that prophecy come to pass in the regathering that continues to happen today of the Jews into the land of Israel, but the life hasn't been breathed into them yet. That's why they still reject God. That's why they still care more about what the United States thinks about their government than they do about God. And that's why this new coalition in Israel that booted Netanyahu. He needs to go. He's been there too long anyway. But that's why it's not going to work. It's not going to work because they're still looking to themselves and not to God. They need that breath of life from the Holy Spirit. They don't have it yet. But immediately following this vision of the dry bones and immediately preceding what's going to play a big part in waking them up, the invasion of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel's given a glimpse of what John sees here. Chapter 37, verses 25 through 28, God's talking about how He will preserve Israel and they're going to have one shepherd one day and Judah and Israel will be reunited together. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant. Don't tell me that the land of Israel isn't God's to give to whom He desires and He gave it to them. It belongs to them, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. This is during the millennium. Children, children's children. Forever. That's forever. Millennium and new heaven and new earth. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Forever. Not for a thousand years. Forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. If you go to chapters 40 through 48, we get a detailed description and blueprint for that sanctuary, the millennial temple, the mikdash in Hebrew here. That's the same word. If you talk to any Jew and you talk about the temple and the temple being destroyed, I always say the Mikdash. They know exactly what I'm talking about. The Mikdash was destroyed in 70 AD, but God's prophet said that the Messiah would come and teach and speak in the temple. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then then, uh, God is a liar because the Mikdash is no longer there. It was destroyed by the Romans. So I know this word. Mikdash, my sanctuary will be in the midst of them forevermore. We know this. Ezekiel tells us there'll be a temple there. A temple. Then verse 27, my tabernacle also. So we have something other than the sanctuary. My sanctuary will be there, but my tabernacle also. In Hebrew, this is... Let me make sure I pronounce it right. Mishkan, which means residence. The sanctuary is a consecrated place. The Mishkan is the residence. And we're told later in Revelation 21 that there's no temple in the residence, the new Jerusalem, because God is a temple. So my tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Man, it looks like John just quoted Ezekiel. And why? Why all of this? And this is where we learn that these things, the new Jerusalem is not something appointed only for the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem is appointed 
for the millennium, just like the temple. And these things, the, the present creation will melt and dissolve around these things, along with the church, the nation of Israel, the word of God. And the new heaven and the new earth will be created to include them. They will transcend. Why? How do I know that? Because when God's tabernacle is with men, verse 28, and the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. The presence of these things in the millennium will teach the heathen that God did choose Israel. They are the capital. And it doesn't matter what the United Nations thinks. And Jesus did indeed build His church. And the gates of hell did not prevail against it. And it won't. And all the heathen will see these things. They're going to learn a hard lesson. Those that repent and are born again will live and bear children. And there will be peace. There will be no curse in the new Jerusalem. But these things transcend. And they're a teacher for a thousand years, but then they endure into the new creation. We're going to see that when John gets a detailed tour, a personal tour of the new Jerusalem at the end of chapter 21. We're going to see that this is also in the millennium. He sees it first in the new creation, but then it's in the millennium. It's got restricted access to. Not everybody's allowed in there. Just like not everybody's going to be allowed in the temple. But... These things show Israel's land and its people will transcend the millennium. I've already talked about that, into the new heaven and the new earth, along with the temple, which we see in chapters 40 through 48 of Ezekiel, forever. Now, why did God show Ezekiel these things? Why did He show him the detailed pattern of the temple? Well, we get the answer in chapter 43, verse 10. God showed him... So that the people who had turned their backs to God instead of their faces would be ashamed. That's why he showed them. Ezekiel 43.10 Thou son of man, show the house. This is the mikdash, the, the sanctuary to the house of Israel. That they may be ashamed of their iniquities. So i got to ask myself, God's showing us. His tabernacle, He's going to show it to us in detail in Revelation 21. Is there an element where we need to look at that and be ashamed because of our iniquities and our foolishness and our everywhere we go preach the gospel, use words and all this garbage we've bought into for all these years? Maybe there's an element where these things in Revelation 21 ought to make us ashamed and seek the Lord and start believing Him And stop listening to these wolves and these liars. You know, it's amazing to me. I came to church this morning, and for the first time in a year, I saw parking lots full of cars. People are back in church now. They're back. There was a sign at a church down the road from my house. They call it Sardis. I don't know why you'd ever want to name your church Sardis. The church that was had a name they were living, but they were dead. I mean, there was a remnant in Sardis. Maybe that's what they're thinking of, but that's really not. But there were a parking lot, there were parking lots full of cars. Everybody's back. I saw a sign at this church that said, We're open now. Come worship inside. And that doesn't make me happy. And you think, well, maybe it should. It doesn't. Here's why it doesn't make me happy. They didn't go back inside until they got permission from Caesar to do it. That is wicked as hell. Amen. That's wicked as hell. The churches of this country waited until Caesar gave them permission. Waited until Antichrist, his spirit, gave them permission. Now they're all back. You think God's meeting with them? Or is Jesus on the outside, Laodicea, knocking? I hope somebody will get up and let him in. He'll sup with them. Even if one man gets up, he'll sup with them personally. But they waited for Caesar's permission. I'm so thankful for this church. I'm so thankful for the leadership of this church that didn't look to Caesar for permission in areas that belong to God. And God has been good to us. The virus is real. It's killed people. Oh, they've lied to us about it and they're guilty of murder. Anthony Fauci is guilty of mass murder. He should be swinging from a light pole after he's been tried and convicted. I make no apology for that. He's a murderer and a liar. They've lied to us, but people have died. 
People have suffered. People have been kept from their elderly family members. Elderly people have died alone and have not been allowed access to their families. There's a lot of blood on the hands of this country. And a lot of people have died. But God has been good to us because we obeyed Him. And sickness hasn't run rampant in this church. People have been sick. They got rest. They drank fluids. And they were fine. I give God the praise for that. When you obey Him, He will take care of you. And I praise God that we've been able to come. We've had people come into the church. We've had visitors. We've had people baptized. We've grown together in the grace and knowledge of the Lord because we didn't wait for Caesar's permission. Now, granted, our consequences haven't been like many people in Canada. But I know that even if the consequences had been like that, I know the leadership of this church still wouldn't have bowed. Amen. I know they wouldn't. I praise God for that. But there's an element in which some of this ought to make us ashamed because for far too long we've been caught up in this rat race. Not living and confessing ourselves as strangers and pilgrims like Abraham and the men of faith did. That's what we are, guys. This stuff is a house of cards. All that American dream is one of the biggest lies in the history of the world is the American dream. We know that now. I praise God He's given us eyes to see. It's not because we're better than anybody or smarter than anybody. It's because we fear God. And the same can be said of others who fear God. God says that His sanctuary, His consecrated place, and His residence will have a place in the kingdom of Christ and in eternity that all may know that He does exactly what He says He's going to do. This testimony of John here tells us that God keeps His promises. This new Jerusalem is referred to elsewhere in both Isaiah and Micah. Micah and Isaiah lived at the same time. Okay? And it's called the mountain of the Lord's house. In fact, Micah quotes Isaiah exactly. Isaiah 2.2 and then Micah 4.1 are like the exact same verse. But it says that the day is coming in the kingdom of Messiah that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. That means it's hovering above the mountains. This is... What this voice testifies of, the tabernacle of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord's house in the top of the mountains will be with men. John sees this first, as I've mentioned, in the new creation. Then he's given a personal tour, verse 9 through chapter 22, verse 5. And we see that it's also suspended above the earth as it is written there in Isaiah and Micah. Above the mountains. What an incredible thing to think about or visualize. It's kind of like, and it's also got restricted access, Revelation 21, 27, VIP access only for the redeemed. It's kind of like an old city, new city type of relationship. In the millennium and in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be an old city, new city relationship between Jerusalem and God's temple and the new Jerusalem. And that shouldn't surprise us. We see it all around us when you travel the world. Go to Delhi. There's Delhi and there's New Delhi. Okay? There's even a picture of this in Israel today. When you go to Jerusalem, you have the old city of Jerusalem, but then you've got New Jerusalem, which is the fancy, updated West Jerusalem part where the Jews have gone in there and built these nice parks and apartment buildings and all of this stuff where it used to be a war zone. So we see these things in life all around us, and that's exactly what... Uh, it's going to be. Who inherits the tabernacle of God? John says, the vo- the, John hears a voice that says, the tabernacle of God is with men. He's going to dwell with them and they will be His people. He will be their God. Who is they and them? Who are these people? Who inherits it? It's very simple. Isaiah tells us exactly. Turn to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, 13. This is who inherits it. When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. 
This is talking about the religious people that had turned their backs on God. You can cry all day long, but nobody's going to hear. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. God's holy mountain is the new Jerusalem. Those who inherit it are those who put their trust in him. Jew and Gentile. That's the they and the them here in verse 3. Guys, if we put our trust in God, that means we believe in Him and we believe Him and we confess it and we trust in the Messiah, then we will inherit God's residence. And you can bank on it because God keeps His promise. Notice it doesn't say the religious people or the people that go to the temple every day or the, the virtue signal, those that trust in the Lord. The fear and trust of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And it's what makes men right with God. Put your trust in the Lord. Say, Lord, I trust you. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I repent. Jesus Christ paid the price. I believe what your word says. And I trust you. That's salvation. And then the Holy Spirit of God will sanctify you and set you apart. Young people that aren't saved, you better get saved if you want to inherit this stuff. Lord, I trust you. That's salvation. We can't do it for you. Guys, man doesn't go up to God with his cities. He's tried in the past. There are evil people in power that still think they can build up to God and usurp his authority. Sometimes they hide their designs in plain sight. But man doesn't go up to God with his cities. God comes down to man with his. That's the way it works. You know, we believed all that scare during the Cold War about the world being destroyed by nuclear weapons. Guys, it never could have happened. Why were we afraid? Man can't destroy this planet because God says He's going to destroy it. Man can't, they can tell you all day long, we're going to build this, we're going to do this, we're going to travel all over the universe, we're going to discover all this, and we're going to live forever. No. Man doesn't build up, go up to God and invade heaven. God comes down. You can bank on it. We believed lies before. Let's just stop doing it. Let's stop doing it. Let's don't believe these fear mongers, these fear porn actors. Because we know the truth. We hear what will be, what's never been. God's residence comes and dwells among men, verse 3. Now we get to verse 4. Now, John hears what won't be, what's always been from the fall of man. So John hears what will be, something that's never been, God's residence here. And now he hears what won't be when God's residence is here, something that's always been since the garden. So in other words, we see the law of this creation terminate. It expires. Turn to Ecclesiastes 3.15. This is the law of the present creation. It's a law. It's a scientific law. And this law endures. All other laws are based upon it. And we would do well to remember it. We carry around iPhones and we forget it, but this is an unalterable law of this creation. In Ecclesiastes 3.15, That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. It's said elsewhere in the Kohelet, in Ecclesiastes, there is no new thing under the sun. Guys, we might have different technologies, we might... We might be able to carry an iPhone or iPad, but there's nothing new. The same evil that's been since the Garden of Eden, the same suffering, the same uh, pride and selfishness of men endures today. And these people that come along promising you stuff that no one else has ever been able to deliver, don't listen to it. It's the same thing. Everything we see today has been tried before, and it never works. That which has been, we see it, and that which is has already been. And God's judgment, His standard of judgment, never changes. You're without excuse whether you have an iPad or a horse and buggy. You're without excuse because God has revealed Himself. 
But here, the law of this creation expires. Why does it expire? Because the things that have always been, they're no longer. They're gone. They're gone. There've always, there's always been tears and death and pain and sorrow. But now these things are gone. That great law of creation terminates. Amen. It expires. We're told God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. No more tears. The verb there means to wipe away or literally to smear them out, to obliterate. I think of what you do when you have a a sticky, gooey residue that's left on something. I don't know if you pull off a piece of tape or... And you use this goo gone. You spray the goo gone on there and then you rub it around and rub it in it and smear it until the adhesive is gone. That's the imagery here. The tears are gone. They're smeared out. They are no more. Now God knows our tears. He knows them. He keeps them. He's got bottles and He's got books. And He knows our tears. Psalm 56, 8. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. It's very short. Psalm 56, 3 is great. We've forgotten this one. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. But verse 8. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? God knows our wanderings. He puts our tears in his bottle and he remembers them in his books. God knows our tears. The imagery here is, it's a reference to what in the ancient world was called lacrimatories. Lacrimatories were bottles. They were tear bottles that relatives put tears in when a loved one died. And these Lacrimatory bottles were buried with them. This was popular and it was a Roman custom, but it's also spoken of amongst the Jews in the Talmud. In one of the writings in the Talmud commentaries, it says, Whoever sheds tears for a good man deceased, the holy blessed God numbers them and puts them into his treasures, according to Psalm 56 8. So here we have a reference in the Talmud, at least that. The Jews thought along these lines and referred to David's tears here as funeral tears. Why would God store our tears? Why would He keep a record of them? I think we can find the answers in the Scriptures. Turn to Psalm 103. My mom sent me this verse this week. It was perfect what I was meditating upon. An answer to this question, why would God store up our tears and then one day wipe them away? Verse 13 of Psalm 103, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. God has pity for us. Why? Because He knows our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him. And His righteousness unto children's children. The words for fear and trust are synonymous in the Old Testament. Those who trust in the Lord inherit the new Jerusalem. Those who fear Him, God pities. And His mercy extends to them for for all of eternity. God knows that we are frail, my friends. He knows we are dust. He knows that my body cannot walk across America without hurting and ailing. He knows that. I don't have to convince Him. And yet He calls us to do things. Normal people couldn't wander around in a desert for 40 years unless God watched over them. And so when they came into the land of Canaan, their shoes had not waxed old. 
their clothing hadn't didn't need to be replaced. It's the same God we serve. He knows we're, we're weak. He knows it. So let's go to Him for strength instead of our selves. Why does God store up our tears? Because He pities us. He doesn't hate us like the gods of men. Those who serve the Hindu deities, they, they, know, they don't serve them because they love them. They're afraid of them. But not God. He pities. Look, I've said it before. If God didn't care about you, no one would. We can all talk about how we care about you and you and everybody in here. Yeah, that sounds good. And we do in our sincerity right here and now. But let's face it. If you died tomorrow and we all went and shed some tears at your funeral, put them in a bottle, buried them with you, we'd remember you, we'd think about you, we'd occasionally talk about you, but give it about five years. You'd never be mentioned again. You'd be forgotten. That's the way of things. But not God. He never forgets. If God didn't love you, if God didn't pity you, who would? But He does. And He stores up the tears of those who fear Him and trust Him. God pities us. That's why He stores up these things. But there's another reason. Turn to Isaiah 66, a familiar passage we've read many, many times in this study of Revelation. But I just want to zero in on verse 5 without taking too much time. Here's another reason why God stores up our tears and our sorrows. Hear the word of the Lord, ye who tremble at His word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for My namesake, said, let the Lord be glorified, but He shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. God stores up our tears, the tears of the righteous, to shame, to aggravate, and to condemn the wicked who have persecuted God's servants in His name. That's why. He stores them up because He pities us, and He stores them up to shame those who have leveled false charges against us because we have believed and trembled at the Word of God. So the next time you're mocked as we have been, for believing God's Word versus the CDC, just remember, God stores it up, and one day those folks will be ashamed. That's why. But, God stores these things up because He loves us and has mercy upon those that fear Him, and to shame those who have leveled false charges. But this is what God is not. God is not a hoarder. He stores up things for use and for purpose. But He's not a hoarder. And when there's no longer use for it, He disposes of it. There's coming a time when there will be no more tears. The tears will be wiped away. The bottles and the books which are used at the great white throne judgment. Remember the wicked are judged according to the things written in the books. One of those books is where God has recorded where the righteous have been persecuted and lied about by the wicked, storing their tears. But those books are not needed. Those bottles aren't needed. God disposes of them. They're gone. No more tears. No more tear bottles. No more tear books. God isn't, doesn't have a sick spiritual problem like the American hoarder. He doesn't hoard things He doesn't need. You know, the hoarding that, we, that you see here in America from time to time, it's not... I'm not talking about people who collect things. I'm not talking about that. There are people who collect things because they enjoy them and they're, they, they're orderly and all this. I'm talking about hoarders. People that can't get rid of something to save their life. That is a unique problem that you only find in this country. And it's the product of a, of a society that's grown so fat with God's blessings that we turn our back to Him and we, we just are delusional. I mean, you don't see people hoarding up a bunch of junk like you do here. But a hoarder has a sick spiritual problem. Guys, if we want to be like God, then we need to quit hanging on to a bunch of stuff. If you've got shirts in your closet that you don't wear, get rid of them and make some room and give them to somebody who'd wear them. I mean, I try to do that. I try to visit my closet a couple of times each year. Eric knows because he usually gets to go through that stuff. And I really don't care where it goes after that. But God's not a hoarder. We shouldn't be either. 
And simplicity's nice, guys. Jamie don't want me building another bathroom on the house. I would like not to have to stand in line between my, behind my 11-year-old son. But she just doesn't want to because we don't need that. It's just more to clean. Ecclesiastes says you're better off with a handful and none of the stress that goes with your arms full. But God's not a hoarder. Americans are, and that's a sick spiritual problem. Let me go on record. No more tears. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of things. If If people would take care of stuff, they wouldn't have to replace it all the time. But the garbage made today, it doesn't matter how nice you take care of it, you've got to replace it anyway. So it's just a big mess. That's why we shouldn't hold on to the things of this world where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. No more tears. God will wipe them away. He'll smear them out. Praise God. We don't have to cry anymore. No more death. Not just no more tears. No more death. Death is the last enemy that is destroyed, according to Paul. Now, God has an order that He's going to do things. The rapture, the millennium, the new heaven, the new earth, it all plays into that order. And there's going to come a time where God the Father and God the Son, as we know them, and God the Spirit, are God all in all. The great abdication. And we're going to talk about that later. But in the context of that passage... We learn that Paul talks about God's order, that the last enemy destroyed is death. The last enemy isn't Satan. It's not the wicked. It's not Antichrist. It's death itself. And there will be no death. There is death in the millennium because there's a whole bunch of people killed by fire from God that falls from heaven when they come against the camp of the saints. They actually surround the suspended New Jerusalem, and just like at Babel, and just like the CDC today, just like the Nazis and the New World Order and all that, they think they're going to somehow take over. And there's death, but not in the new creation. There's no more death. That last enemy is destroyed at the great white throne. No more violent death. No more natural death. No more will be the way of all flesh. Again, that law of this creation, all die, 100% die, 20 out of 20 die, it expires. The shelf life is over. Gone. There's no more death, and that means we've got to have new bodies because these bodies ain't going to work. And we do. Philippians 3 tells us, and I've preached about this, I don't want to go into a lot of detail, that God is going to change our vile bodies and fashion them like unto His resurrection body. Our resurrection bodies will be like Christ. I don't know exactly what that means. I do know that Jesus went through walls. I, knew, I do know Jesus ate and drank, but it was a spiritual body. We're told in 1 John that we shall be like Him when we see Him. No more death because we'll have new bodies. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that, differentiates the earthy body we have now versus the heavenly body. The corruptible versus the uncorruptible. The natural versus the spiritual. I'm not going to take time to read verses 35 through 58, but if you just need to get away from the clanging symbols of this world and be reminded of what awaits us when you're sick and you're ailing and your knees hurt and you found a new skin tag or a new knot somewhere, just read that. This vile body will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, the rapture. And those bodies for us will endure forever. No more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain. I like the words used here in their order. The word for sorrow speaks of mourning and weeping. This is the depression part of grief. When we grieve, we go through depression. Sorrow, weeping, mourning. No more of that. No more depression, God. Nothing to be depressed about. No more crying. That word in the original language is like an outcry. That's the bargaining and the anger parts of grief. You know, you deny. You know, the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Where there's not going to be any more depression, there's not going to be any more anger or bargaining. And when you take that out, 
then there doesn't have to be any denial or acceptance because it's just all gone. All five stages of grief are gone. No more. No more mourning and weeping. No more outcry, trying to bargain and getting angry. And you'll never have to accept grief because there will be no grief. No sorrow, nor crying. Zero stages of grief. So another part of that law of creation that expires. Five goes to zero. Praise God. Zero stages of grief. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're looking for. That's what Abraham looked for in a city whose builder and maker is God. And God's saying it from heaven. This is just as true, just as authoritative as this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you believe that, then you can believe this. No more pain. Now this isn't talking about just physical pain. The word used here encompasses physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. You know what spiritual pain is? You know how it's different from emotional pain? There's not going to be any sickness, no hurt, no disease of body in the new creation. Neither is there going to be an affliction of the mind. You know when your mind won't shut off and you can't sleep at night, or you can't just take a break and then your body gets weak. No more that. But there won't also be any vexation of spirit. No more physical pain, no more affliction of the mind, no more vexation of spirit. What is spiritual pain? You can ask Lot, he'll tell you. Second Peter chapter 2, Lot dwelling in Sodom was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Having to live amongst that and see it every day vexed his spirit. It was spiritual pain. If you want to feel some spiritual pain today, I can tell you what to do. It's pretty simple. Get in your car, go up Interstate 81, or you can even go Interstate 85 till it turns into 95, and get within 100 miles of Washington, D.C. You'll know what spiritual pain feels like if you're a born-again believer. Trust me. When you turn on the TV, turn on the TV and listen to the usurper, the fake president who can't put two senses together. Listen to him speak or listen to that devil Fauci. Just listen to him speak and make excuses. You will know what spiritual pain feels like. There won't be any of that in the new creation. I mean, to me, that's the most incredible. No more vexation of spirit. Our vexation of spirit probably is more responsible for our emotional and our physical pain than we realize. If we trust more in the promises of God and relax, God says there in Isaiah that in rest and uh, uh, in rest will be your strength and in trusting in Him. But none of that will be in the new creation. Praise God. I just want to read a quick passage from Romans 8. I'm almost done. Romans 8. 22 through 23 says these words. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. That's a spiritual pain. Waiting for adoption, the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. There will be none of this groaning. And creation itself won't groan anymore. We'll be delivered. Creation today longs to be delivered. The animals, the plants, the trees. A lot of times animals have more sense than we do. They know they're created. But creation groans. All that is gone. All that is gone for the former things are passed away. No more pain, no more crying or sorrow, no more death, no more tears. The former things, the protos in Greek, the prototypes, it's where we get the word prototype. Former things is the word protos. The, fo- the prototypes, they're gone. Now we got the real thing. You know, in Hebrews 8 and 10, the writer or Paul tells us that. Everything that was given in the Old Testament, the, the, temp, the tabernacle and all the 
uh, utensils and everything and the priesthood and the law was a shadow of eternal things. It was a pattern of what is to come. And the shadows always point us or the prototypes always point us to the ultimate. Well, the prototypes are gone. We're living in reality. Creation as it is designed to be. No more veil. No more glass darkly. No more shadows and patterns. But what you see is what you'll get. The former things are passed away. That word is not the same passed away that we see elsewhere. It's a different word, but it gives us an image, and I've said it before. It's like headlights coming down a long ribbon road in the desert. It seems like they take forever to get to you. But eventually, they pass by. And when they do, they're gone. The former things, they take forever. It takes forever, but it happens. It's like the step, the, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Now, I don't know for 100% sure if that's true. I don't know yet, but maybe about 350 miles from now, I'll be able to tell you whether that's true or not. But that's the sense here. The former things are passed away a step at a time according to God's plan. And we're enduring, and we're enduring the things He's planned and purpose, but one day it will be fulfilled. One day you'll step onto the mountain peak and it'll make everything you've gone through as a follower of Christ, every trial, every tribulation will be worth it. Endure, endure. Because one day what vexes you now will pass away like headlights in the night not to be remembered. And this is precisely because the former things are passed away. This is precisely why we should not love this present world. Turn to 1 John. And I'm going to end with this today. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Same John, same John that wrote about Jesus and His gospel that saw these things said this. Love not the world, verse 15. Chapter 2, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There are many professing Christians that have loved the world this last year during all this uh, COVID hysteria. The love of the Father is not in them, according to God. They need to repent and get right. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passeth away. And the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Why shouldn't we love the world? Because the former things are passed away. Like headlights in the desert. And they're also passed away. In the sense that. It's what we hope for. Not what we wait for. What we wait for is passed away. That's the word there in Revelation. What we're hoping for is passed away. Used here in 1 John. It's one and the same. That's why waiting and hope go together. If we hope in God, we're willing to wait. If we're willing to wait on the Lord, then we know what it is to hope. But the world passes away. In other words, faith is made sight. Hope is made flesh. There's a hope element here. That's why we shouldn't love the world. It passes away like headlights in the night. We've waited for it, and yet we've also hoped for it. And the hope becomes reality. Paul says in, back in Romans 8, and I'll, it's a familiar passage, I'm sure, for, for, for many of you. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to move on from where I stopped last time in verses 24 and 25. Um, this is the type of passing away. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he yet? Why do you got to hope for something you've got right in front of you? But if we hope for what we see not then we do with patience wait for it. See how hope and waiting, hoping and waiting go together. So here, 
the passing away that's related to waiting is what we see there in Revelation 21 verse 4. The passing away with regard to hoping is what we see. That's the other verb for passing away in 1 John 2. So there's a hope element. This is why we shouldn't love the world. But there's a time coming. Now we walk by faith and not by sight. But there's a time coming when we don't have to walk by faith anymore. We don't have to hope anymore because it's right there in front of us. So we walk by faith now. We hope now because one day those things will be passed away and our faith will be made sight just like we sung in that old hymn this morning. Remember Proverbs eleven seven back at Advent? The expectation of the wicked perishes. The hope of unjust men perishes. Proverbs eleven seven. Not our hope. All of this hope out here, of these wicked elites, this new world order, these liars, the CDCs, the NASA's, all this stuff, all this stuff they hope for to conquer the universe, it's going to die with them. But not ours. For the former things are passed away. That's good news. That's good news. So we've covered the first thing that John hears. It is a voice out of heaven. And he hears a declaration that what will be, something will be that has never been. God lives with men. And the things that have always been will no longer be. The pain and the sorrow and the sickness and the crying and the death. That's good news. That's an easy way to forget about all this garbage that's got everybody in a fuss. Just forget about it and meditate on this for a bit. Next week we'll cover verses 5 through 8. This is a, a general declaration becomes a personal exhortation. And I want to leave you with this. We see twice as John hears a voice from the throne. The voice that spoke unto me. There's a voice from heaven, but now him that sits on the throne speaks. This is God himself. And he said, unto me, unto me. (coughs) Unto me. My friends, never forget that God is a personal God who speaks to his servants. God speaks to John from the throne. And He will speak to you from His throne through Jesus Christ. God is a personal God. He speaks to His servants. Does He speak to you? Are you listening? Some of you kids in here, it's time for you to get saved. It's time for you to get right with God and stop playing games. God will speak to you if you listen. Young Samuel was laying in the bed. God spoke to him because he's a personal God. He thought it was Eli. And when Eli recognized what was going on, he said, this is God. Go back. And when God speaks to you, say, here am I, Lord. I'm listening. That's the best thing you can do, kids. When God speaks to you, listen and do what he says. But this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom God has sent. That's Jesus Christ. By him, we can have a personal relationship with the creator God. Just as we see here, the personal interaction between the Creator and His servant. And we're going to read more about that, talk more about it next week. Guys, if you study the Scriptures, the hearing from God isn't so much in the reading. A lot of us read the Scriptures. Do we meditate upon it? The hearing from God is in the meditation. I'm walking across America because God told me to do it. He's a personal God. He spoke to me as I meditated upon His Scriptures. And so, I'm doing what God told me to do. But He doesn't speak to me because I'm special. I'm not. He'll speak to you too. Listen. He'll speak unto us just as He did unto John. And it begins here. We have something John didn't even have in his lifetime. We have the whole canon of Scripture. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning and a great encouragement to us who are dwelling as strangers and pilgrims, Lord, in this present world that offers no happiness. It can only offer pain and death and tears and sorrow and crying. 
It can only offer these things. But Father, you are a personal God and you offer to us freedom from all those things through Jesus Christ. He was crucified. He was buried. He rose from the grave. He is the Messiah. He paid the price for our sin. And you command men everywhere to repent and believe upon him. And for those that do, for those who trust you, we will inherit your home. And your home will one day come down and dwell amongst men in a new creation, Lord, where all of these things will pass away. Lord, may that motivate us this week to serve you. May that motivate us to quietly wait upon you, to encourage one another, and not to freak out like the world. May that motivate us so that the world can speak and it goes in one ear and out the other. Lord, may it motivate us that we would obey you Not when Caesar gives us permission, but because you have said so. How can we not declare the things we've seen and we've heard? Thank you for revealing these things to us through your word. Thank you for showing them to your servant, for inspiring these things that were written and for preserving them throughout history in a way that man can't preserve his own accomplishments. And we have it right here today. We acknowledge you and we praise you. Bless the food we're about to eat and our fellowship. And we look forward to coming back again together to serve you and worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.